I'm off on a journey of interstellar proportions in Sonia Dekean's An Astronaut's Life, but I don't even have to leave home. So, Sonia, welcome to 3CR. <laughs> Thank you for having me. My apologies for that little uh, interruption. No to problem our at all. Interview. Now, this collection of short stories, in many ways, is an examination of our own personal inner landscape. Was that your intention there? It's hard to talk about intentions because I think, you know, you sit down to write and um, the intentions aren't always clear at the start of the process. I think at the end of the process, I can look back and say, yes, that was intentional. You know, that is something that I'm that I'm interested in, um, that that was what I wanted to do. But I think when I started, I, each story, I... I maybe had a different idea and I didn't see how they would link together and how that would be one of the things that really did link them together at the end of the process. So it's an evolving process. It really was. I wrote these stories over a long period, maybe five years, Mm -hmm. um, and each one was somehow an experiment, I guess. Towards the end, I knew it was a book and so I was thinking more about the themes and the big picture. But at the start, I was just thinking, what do I want to try in this? You know, what's... Mm -hmm the seed of an idea that I want to experiment with um, and And, just seeing where it went. And then it becomes what the reader makes of of what you're trying to say as well. So, look, let's delve into uh, one of these stories and then we'll start making some connections between stories as we go. But the first story, after Francis Crick, uh, we have a, a man in a coma or waking up from a coma, his sense of reality, and what does he find on waking up? Well, he wakes to find his mother and his wife looking over him. His wife is unexpectedly pregnant, um, which she was not prior to him going into a coma. It's never explained how or why he went into the coma, but he wakes up with this a feeling that there's something missing from his life that was present in his life during the coma. But then we get into this sort of dream notion that he, his internal landscape um, has been... Francis Crick um, and just a bit of background on Francis Crick and DNA. And- Francis Crick um, is known as the father of modern genetics. He and James Watson and Rosalind Franklin um, discovered the structure of the DNA double helix. But this is perhaps more real to him that that life he's been leading in his coma, in his mind, uh, you have then a sort of other world Uh, Melinda, his wife, uh, now pregnant, going into another world, so to speak, of the expectation of a baby and and delivery. And there's a sort of swap over. Uh, What's going on there in the end? In the end? Well, the end is quite open-ended, I think. Mm. I mean, throughout the story, I guess I was playing with this idea that, I mean, everybody at times feels that there is something lacking from their life, that there's a meaning that's lacking. And, and you know, if only we could um, be a great, you know, father of molecular biology, a great discoverer or scientist or something like that, or work on something that was truly meaningful. In this case, he's, he's working on discovering the secret of consciousness, mm. the underlying scientific secret of consciousness. And so um, while he's in the coma, he has this wonderful routine of working on something of value. Mm. And yet when he returns, he, find, he finds it hard to see that in his own life and he finds um, he has to go back to work. You know, he has normal things to do like we all do. Um, so he is trying to piece together what he has learnt from Francis Crick into 
everyday practical life. But what interested me was then uh, his wife goes into labour and she sort of enters a whole other world of her own, so to speak. So, and, and one of his last lines is, I'm back, as just as she's going on her journey, mm. so to speak. Well, uh, I think in that moment he discovers... One of the things that he discovers both in the coma with Francis Crick and in that moment with his wife is just how hard it is to relate to somebody else's experience, how individual consciousness is and how uh, sort of blocked we are within ourselves. So he can never quite reach, um, you know, he can never quite understand what anyone else is going through. But then that notion of uh, exploring different realities comes up in another story, uh, The Race, and you have a, a, a relationship, a couple, um, but on the one level um, you have Rolf who's into ice cream twisties and lycra because he's a cyclist. But at the same time you've juxtaposed this with... Um, well, one of the realities we're facing today of refugees. Um, yeah, you heard it on the news, he says, the people in the water. Yeah, a hundred and something, I say. I won't remember the numbers, 150 or 90 or 353, because they're coming every day now, asylum seekers in boats, day after day in sinking boats, and the Navy is always fishing them out. What have you done here between the sort of realities? Um I guess I, I, in that case, I, I suppose I was, um, I was juxtaposing those two, but with the purpose of, again, I guess, explaining how hard it is to understand somebody else's reality. Um, and in that situation, Rolf is somebody that does deeply care about the situation, whereas um, the main character's mother is somebody who's very anti-refugees. She doesn't want to know. She, uh, And in the story, it's hinted at that she has a lot of her own problems. She's a single mother with two kids. She's working hard. She has a job she doesn't particularly enjoy. Um, you know, her life isn't that easy, and she's not really worried about what's happening to refugees. Mm. Um but how hard is it then for us to identify mm. with that experience and, and to address it in many ways? I think it's one of the major concerns society is facing. That was sort of what I wanted to look at and I wanted to empathetically pr approach a character who was ambivalent. I mean, I, I don't think in the story it's a bad thing that she doesn't know how to feel because there's something very honest about her not knowing how to feel as opposed to putting on a display of extreme compassion and you know, showing everyone how much she cares but not achieving anything, she is very honest about the fact that she doesn't know how mm. to feel. She doesn't know what to do. Because, well, you then put in this image, um, amazing image of, you know, identifying or comparing it to a movie. Do you remember that movie, she says, we saw it when we were kids? That one where the girl went out in her boat with her pet cockatoo and then she was lost on the ocean? I know it. I try to remember what it was called. I can still see the way she went, Jean says. I can still see the dotted line, her route on the map, after all this time. I try to picture it, but this is different. With so many hundreds of people, it's too abstract. And when you try to account for them all, you end up with thousands of crisscrossing lines. They fill in the oceans until they're just black patches on its surface, like the shadows of huge clouds. An amazing image. But also I think it says something about how we see the world, the sort of convenient image on a movie with, oh, well, the plane went from here to here, but it means we don't actually get a sense of what is truly going on. And how difficult it is to really understand the complexities of situations like that, which is why we, we like to um, bring them down to, you know, 140 characters or, you know, a slogan, because that's easy to understand. But in reality, I mean, most of us don't as much as we try. 
Well, we, we can never really understand or appreciate. I'm just wondering what literature can do in situations like this when we're facing these crises all the time. I guess I'm uncertain about about that. I I change my mind. I mean, I, I hope that... I mean, there's definitely... We, I think we've all had the experience of where we read something and, and it does help to change our mind or it does help to enlighten us about something and um, it does help us to see things in a different way that we hadn't before. And And in some ways that's a very small thing but it's something and it's maybe all there is that we can do. Yeah. You use science a lot in your stories. What's the reason for that? I have a background in science. I studied marine biology. Ah. Well, that would lead us then um, into perhaps the foreman where you've got an apocalyptic vision of a sort of uh, wildlife marine uh, conservation thing. Uh, on principles, economic principles, the future, but what's happening in this marine park and things like that? Well, it's set up like a huge uh, theme park that's almost finished and, and supposed to open to the public very soon. And inside the park are displays of now extinct or, or almost extinct animals from around the world. Um, some of them are genetically engineered some of them are animatronic and, and some of them are just the last, the last remnants of remaining species. What's the point you're trying to make? Because in the end, I mean, the foreman is trying to make sure everything works and it's not going to plan and um, without hopefully not giving too much away, the whale, which is the, one of the featured uh, the exhibits, yeah. is in distress and he's thinking, oh, what will the investors think? But... The reply is, what a wonderful display, they say. It's the perfect thing, just the message of the park. How did you do it? Can we see it again? We must see it again. And the point you're making here? I think I had maybe a lot of points. I, I, that story is about capitalism in, mm. in many ways, and it's also about community and individualism. And, and I think that the main character in that story, Mr. Way, is is torn between these things. He's having to make a decision about whether is he going to look after himself? Is he going to put himself first? He, he's got a new um, nephew mm. who's just come along that night. So He's thinking about his family and his own freedom, but at the same time, there's a there's a bigger picture. So it's the that playoff between making the sacrifice for the community or for his individual. What I read into it was a sort of perversity where the investors are not actually seeing the real thing, and and the artificial world has now become more accepted. You know, the the park was trying to uh, conserve, preserve, but what it's done is have put in place a distorted yes. reality, so to speak. And, and the investors think this is fantastic. This has become the new reality. And it's, and it's suggested that they're the ones that, you know, they're responsible for destroying a lot of those yeah. animals on purpose so they'd be more valuable in the park. Yes, so it, it really is a worry. There's all sorts of uh, perversities here. You do address global warming, uh, nanotechnology, all sorts of, of things like this. Um, yes, so it's, it's a, a sort of... Uh, unique um, perspective of a range of concerns and unfortunately we're going to actually have to bring the interview to an end. Um, the book is entitled An Astronaut's Life. It's a collection of short stories to get you thinking about contemporary issues. The author, Sonia Dekian, and it's a text publication. So Sonia, thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. And we're going straight into Die Morrissey. 
Cook Town in far north Queensland is the setting for Di Morrissey's latest book, Rain Music. And for the interesting facts, details and, and vistas, I would think Di Morrissey must have stayed there for a while. Did you? Of course I did. <laughs> I go to all the places I write about. That's the best part. Oh, look, it must have been. And I think you might have enjoyed your time there because it is written, the vistas are just beautiful and you really acknowledge all the plants. and. Oh, it's such extraordinary landscape and it's very diverse. I mean, I went all the way up. Cairns also features in the book. Yes. And I, from Cairns, and when you go into that lush and richly tropical, dense rainforest, and then you come out into the more open savanna country, and then you're heading again back up into monsoon country at the up to the up to the Cape, and and you're either close to the coast, or then you're inland in these extraordinary mountains. And where the gold fields, the Palmer River gold fields, used to be, it's like it's like the ocean. It's wave after wave after wave of this sort of kind of open country with you know, short stubby trees and dirt tracks and you think they had to carry everything yes. wheelbarrows maybe a horse uh, it was it's extraordinary and of course this is the whole thing about cooktown too it's had these waves of population Indeed, in, indeed, and, and I um, and that's one of the things that really fascinated me was the you're very conscious of history in the place because of the the old buildings, but particularly the landscape. To stand at Grassy Knoll at the top of Cooktown, over the, looking over the township to the Endeavour River, and then in the distance the ocean, and think that is where Captain Cook mm. dragged his wounded Endeavour into the into the shore and stayed there for seven weeks and and thus you know our white history began and left his anchor he did you know I didn't realize so I went into the James Cook Museum which is stunning it's full of the most wonderful memorabilia and there is the there's the anchor and the and and the cannon from the endeavor they didn't find it till 1971 mm. I was out of the country I was living in America and I never I never realized that I didn't even know they'd found it because Australia never rates in you know that would not have been news in America but I was flabbergasted so excited to see it there well this is the why what i really liked about in your book is how you gave us that history you know from blackbirders mm. which was fascinating through to that whole history of cooktown and um even why the irish nuns came and set up a girls school yes and that's true too yes well i think the, once that big gold rush started and there were i mean Thousands upon thousands of, of, of hopeful Chinese, you know, prospectors, mm, you know, Chinese. flooded in. So there was like, you know, a thousand to one, uh, you know, white uh, um, um, English inhabitants. Uh, and I think they all thought the gold fields were like on the doorstep and then realised they had this terrible <sighs> trek. But the, the, the excitable Bishop Hutchinson of, of, uh, of Cooktown decided that obviously Cooktown was going to be the metropolis of Australia. So he figured that he better bring some good, good mercy nuts out to to start training up good wives and mothers. Now, I must say right now, Rain Music is not a history book, is it? Oh, no, You've no. just put all of these fascinating facts into well, what is an intriguing family plot. And we better start with Sister Bella. Here she is, very comfortable in our country Victoria. You know, she's what, not a sister in that we've just been talking about oh, nuns. No, oh, no, 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 we don't want, no, no oh. she's not. No, no, she's no. a modern young uh, contemporary girl in the you know in, in the 21st century absolutely she's got she's got a boyfriend 
who desperately wants her to live with her. And now Bella is methodical, organised and efficient. So she's leaving her romantic interests back in the country, Victoria, and chasing her nomadic brother, Ned. Now, why does she want to chase Ned? Because she's the one that, you know, like girls do, we do the right thing. So, you know, she's at home looking after her widowed mother. She has a good job. She's bought her own flat. She has the boyfriend. Uh, And Ned is this kind of drifter and a dreamer who's gone off uh, who knows where to try and, uh, you know, coalesce his dreams to write the great Australian musical. He's quite a successful performer, but he hasn't really hit the big time and this is his dream. And there's a family ceremony, the, you know, commemoration Mm. of their late father. And of of course, you know, the mother and sister want the, you know, drifter brother to be there. Uh, and then they realise he's actually dropped off the radar because and they have no idea where he is. You know how men are. They only call when they have a reason mm. or to talk. They don't just, you know, to, to pass on news. They don't chat. So so she has to actually take leave and set off to find him. And so she is like pin in the haystack but she does finally and so she knows that he's up north and I think it's interesting to follow Bella's journey as she goes goes north and it's through her eyes that Mm. we learn and see the things that she does but she finally finds Ned in Cooktown and then you know their lives are changed and all kinds of dramatic things happen. The book's called Rain Music and we know that Ned is a musician and I'd like you to read about the, the type of music he wants to make from page 129. Oh, all right. Ned wanted his music to unite people, to move their spirit. He wanted songs to honour the earth, to ask people to learn to love what they had around them. He knew people responded positively to him whenever he appeared and sang, but he couldn't live on applause from a few devoted fans. So should he now abandon his dream of creating music his way? Of course. And he gets the chance to go to an isolated town, an isolated house, which... Is that a figment? It's a dwelling. A dwelling. <laughs> it's yeah. not a house in the conventional sense. It's a true place. I did. Oh, it I is, thought you must have seen it. It is extraordinary. It's in the middle of nowhere up there outside the ghost town of Maytown and it's on the arm of a river and it's a um, – he's quite youngish and, a you know, a, a prospector, a gold fossicker and has a lease up there and his Italian parents came out uh, and they helped him build what grew from a, a shack to this multi-level strange conglomeration of bits of bamboo but there was wonderful clay there and so they made bricks and they have built this sort of Taj Mahal of, you know, towering pizza ovens and uh, it's it's just a wine, so they make their own grappa and, and it's this kind of Italian sprawling little kind of village under the Poinciana trees on the river with no one, anyone or anywhere around and they prefer it that way that nobody knows where they are. So this is where Ned is and in this isolation he's writing his music, the music he wants to write and Cooktown of course is giving him ideas, you know, with the cultural diversity of Cooktown. He's also getting ideas for musical diversity. Mm. But um, the isolation, you know, this house, it's built with beauty but also flood mitigation, you know, sort of so it can control. Because everybody sort of says... Beware the wet, 
beware the wet. And we think, you know, well, I thought the suspense was going to come with the rain, but it doesn't. It comes with two men who use the waterways to, oh, they were creepy. It was a bit scary, (laughs) wasn't it? Well, uh, you know, you do hear some extraordinary stories. There's this place called, um, I only just briefly mentioned it, but uh, Black Mountain, which is just outside Cooktown. And in all the greenery, there's this granite black mountain, which is all just granite shiny black boulders with bits of lichen on them. And they look like a giant has just tumbled them together and there's holes kind of between them so if you dare to go on the mountain you can hear this moaning and groaning in the depths of the earth but the legends go back to Mm. the early 1800s of of people and animals going in and never coming out i mean i heard that you know the legend is a thousand cattle went in with rustlers the police went in after them and none of them ever appeared again I mean, so it's very creepy. There's some funny stories up there. Linking like with Hanging Rock in country country Victoria. (laughs) So we get the suspense. We get the the music. And uh, I love the way that you've also interwoven some of the musicians from Cape Town in Cairns, from the past that that have left. Yes, yes. And in fact, some of the um, uh, the uh, Wilma is a, is is still alive and 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 well and singing in Cairns. And that history that goes back to the Barbary Coast in Cairns of the nineteen seventies, huge music scene. It was really, you know, we had big name stars coming out, and it began with the fishing with Lee Marvin, the old movie star. But then the music scene was pretty wild and woolly. So it was kind of interesting. So Ned gets very interested in in that history, but it's also the story of a relationship of a brother and sister. Oh, yeah. See, I'd never written about siblings because I'm an only child. Oh. So it's, that's a relationship I'd never explored. So I found that very interesting to to uh, to to research and 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 you know discover how two personalities in one family when there is a family secret. Well, we do find it out, but not till the end and not until after some some quite uh, suspenseful activity. Look, the other things I liked in this are Dorothy McKellar quotes. Yes, yes. Well, I knew Dorothy McKellar. She she was a huge influence on my life when I was a very little little girl. She, in her later years, lived down at Pittwater. And she told you to yes. write the story that was in your heart. That's right, because uh, mm-hmm. she had the most... I'd never seen a full library before when I first went into her house. And she, uh, I said, well, I didn't have so many books. And, and so I had to make up my own stories in a very disappointed voice. And she said very seriously, well, my dear, you should put them down in a book one day and other people can read them and enjoy them. Well, I'm glad you did. And I said, all right, I'll do that. <laughs> Mind you, it took like I was nearly 40, but however, the never other, give up. No, and each chapter of this book, Rain Music by Dime uh, Morrissey, is, has a, a photograph and you, mm. you acknowledge um, Stuart Owen Fox. He didn't take those photographs. He, he was um, an old friend who uh, uh, died in, uh, you know, uh, um, he lived in Cooktown for a number of years oh. and died a few years ago. And he developed this extraordinary technique of photographing, particularly the Cooktown orchid, uh, things in 3D. Oh. So you look like you could pick them up. Um, and he tragically, uh, when, when he knew he was dying, he, uh, he destroyed everything. And to this day, no one knows how he did it. 
So <laughs> that's a mystery. Yes. Along along with Black Mountain, we have the yes, mystery of yes, um, yes, and that rather elusive Vietnam vet of Jack. <laughs> oh, Jack! What, what an Jack? interesting character. He's good, isn't he? But they're, they're all the characters in this book, you know, from the barmaid through to Tony, the the physio. You know, that they they all seem really. Real. I, um, oh, that's Can you great. do that really real? Yeah, oh. yeah. But, I mean, that's why I go to places because it's only by going and and being involved in the landscape and meeting characters and people, you get the sense of the sorts of people that gravitate to a place like Cooktown. The first question you know, I ever ask anyone when I meet them up there is like, well, why are you here? Because uh, everyone has, has, a, a has a reason for being there. Yeah. Well, I'm going to move from the book called The Rain Music to something else that you're involved in and that's the Manning Community News. Oh, my own newspaper. Your own newspaper. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, having trained as a journalist, which was wonderful, um, you know, training for my my novel writing. Eventually, uh, I mean, I grew up in the era of 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 being, you know, there was integrity and ethics, and there were certain ways, and you didn't of doing things, you didn't push yourself forward, and the, the news and truth was, you know, uppermost. And uh, and I get a bit disappointed now seeing what's happened with a lot of our media um, and so uh, in the small country town in mid-north coast New South Wales where I live the Manning Valley um, I felt there was a, an, a space for an alternative voice because I didn't think a lot of things were being talked about very you know issues that concern us greatly like coal seam gas and coal mines mm. and and losing our water and uh, and and uh, I felt there was a bit of domination by the council so I thought well I'll just start my own newspaper well done, you. Look, I had the chance of speaking with Alain de Botton, uh, yes. a philosopher, uh, about his book, The News. And he had real insight into how he thinks it should be written. I haven't read that. I'm going to read it right away. <laughs> oh, gosh. Mm. Yes, yes. Well, he's a very wise, smart man. Yes, yes. But I tell you what, I, I don't think he could have read, written a book like yours, Di Morrissey. Well, there's horses for courses. Isn't that right? <laughs> but listen, you can read the Manning News. It's... Uh, it's online as well as my, you know, printed issues, but it's www.manningcommunitynews.com. As well as you can read the book, which is Rain Music, published by Pan Macmillan, by Di Morrissey. And thank you so much for coming in, Di. Oh, it's been great fun. Lovely to see you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.